Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I got this call from a guy who said he was a CEO of an American television manufacturer. And I knew at the time there are no American television manufacturers. So I was like, really? You make televisions? Mm. He's like, well, we don't actually make the televisions. <laughs> so you, you know, you market them. Well, we have an Omnicom company. Well, you do logistics. Well, UPS is actually. So what do you do? <laughs> and he cries. He cries in his office. He's like, we don't actually do anything. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hey, everyone. Today, we are also joined by Douglas Rushkoff, the author of Team Human and professor of media studies at Queens College and someone that has influenced uh, my and our thinking greatly over the years. So, Douglas, welcome to the show. Hi, good to be with you. You know, here we are. Um, On today's episode, we want to talk about society, uh, the social and economic operating system, and what it all means and what the heck is going on out there right now in the midst of this uh, panic and pandemic. Um, But before we do that, we have to check in because we check in at the beginning of every episode. We have to. And we We will. Like we do. Here we go. Okay. So given that we are all staying home because we are responsible for the collective and we're not being idiots about that. Uh, I'm sure we're all fantasizing about where we're going to go when we get to leave our houses again. So my <laughs> check-in round question for today is, uh, where's your first trip going to be when we all uh, rejoin the living? Aaron, let's start with you, and then we'll go to Doug. It is crazy to me that in the space of just a month and change, the idea of getting on an airplane sounds so nuts to me. Because I used to travel literally <laughs> every, every week. week. <laughs> like, I would be on an airplane all the time. I'm... I'm uh, my my airplane status is disgusting. So I I feel like, first of all, it sounds like a, a, a crazy question to me. Like, where would I go? We can't go anywhere. Um, where would I go? I would probably go, normally the answer would be to New York, but I'm afraid that it's so riddled with pandemic. So I guess if it was clean, I would go back. Yeah, I'd go back to New York City, baby. Back to New York. All right. Yeah. Douglas, what about you? Where are you going when we are, when the apocalypse has ended? Well, I had... Uh... I had tickets to the uh, opening week of uh, Patti Lapone and Company. <laughs> yes, you did. Amazing. Uh, I first thing I want to I'm going to go go to Broadway, go sit in a theater with people. Nice. Yeah. No more social <laughs> distancing. You guys can meet up on your New York trip. We'll do it. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Um, I was supposed to be on vacation sometime that I think was last week, but feels like four months ago in Palm Springs with my best friends. Uh, and uh, that obviously got canceled. And so I'm really anxious to have that trip rescheduled and mm. just to like be in the desert in a beautiful mid-century house uh, hanging out in Palm Springs. So nice. hopefully by 
I don't know. Next year, we're all doing that. Uh, <laughs> I, like, I like the desert in the winter. Yeah, it'll you be know, great. I, yeah, it's, it's gonna be great whenever it happens. Is is the truth of it? Yeah. It'll okay. So, Douglas, we are so excited to have you here to talk about you know something as small as the future of the human race. Yeah. Um. Let's just start with a little grounding about what's on your mind at this moment. As you think about where we are and what's happening to us as a people, what are you contemplating? Um, I guess I'm contemplating just slightly more extreme or urgent or obvious versions of stuff I've been contemplating all along, like uh, the, the fragility and brittleness of a kind of global supply chain, mm-hmm. the the extent to which you know corporations have so efficiently extracted all value and autonomy from local people and places, you know, in the name of, I guess, corporate growth. That <laughs> scale, it, yeah, in the name of scale, that there's just so little distributed local competency. Um, and I'm also really interested, I mean, I- I'm interested in the particular layer of competency that we in America and, and in, in elite America, I guess, have, have excelled in, but then all the areas of competency that we've, that we've left behind, mm-hmm. you know, it's like this, this one example keeps coming to me. I, you know, since the since the crisis, I've been getting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails, more than more than the usual onslaught. <laughs> and there's two the two most common emails I'm getting are from people who either have or want to develop an app that will connect healthcare workers on the ground with people with supplies, mm-hmm. right? Because mm, yeah. they see on TV, as we all do, oh, I'm in an emergency room, I need Shortage. masks. So everyone wants to make that app. Or people with 3D printers who are working on open source collective projects to do 3D printing of ventilators, mechanical ventilators, which we know are needed. And both of these these widespread efforts, they, are, are at a very particular level of, of production and creativity. What the ventilator people don't realize is that there were already close to 100 totally approved 3D printing and alternative mm-hmm. uh, ventilator models already <laughs> online. The right. only problem is we need, uh, we, can't, we need real factories to make them. That, that If you print out one part in 12 hours overnight, yeah, that's not gonna get it, done. <laughs> it doesn't do it. Or the people with the apps and all those apps, it's like, Dude, there's a Google Doc that's already doing this just fine. Mm-hmm. You're just going to create confusion by creating what competitive apps for all the same thing. So right, right. It, I feel like everyone's great at conceiving this thing and 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 building an envision prototype, but there's so few people who can actually do anything. It's it's kind of shocking. That makes so much sense. And it's funny when you first said that, I was thinking even more basic about the fact that like, yeah, we can develop software, but can we, you know, can we farm? <laughs> I know. I know my daughter. It's great. I mean, I'm not supposed to talk about my kid or anything, but she, you know, <laughs> since the coronavirus thing started, she had to pick her um, electives for 10th grade. Okay. And she switched out of like, you know, Latin and hard pivot, m- Middle East law, you know, <laughs> to, to sewing. 
Yeah. Agriculture. And it's just like, <laughs> right. She gets it. I mean, she's she's not watching Walking Dead, but part of her understands that wouldn't it be cool to actually know how to do something? something. <laughs> yes. Those skills are going to be so helpful for us. Yeah. I mean, they already would be, right? Like, we've gotten lazy about our vegetable garden. And then now we're having this moment where even though where we live, the supply chain is still working reasonably well and we could get fresh things. We're like, wouldn't it be great if we could de-risk ourselves by not having Just to having do that? it here, yeah. I mean, just have it here. And it's but funny. we don't because we're lazy and we are knowledge yeah. workers. Yep. I mean, there's a book I wrote. It must have been in uh, 2000. One, mm-hmm. maybe 2002, called Get Back in the Box. And it was this business book I did for HarperCollins. And it was almost like sarcastically subtitled, like how being great at what you do is good for business. <laughs> <laughs> because it just felt like every company was sort of following that Jack Welch model that mm-hmm. let's get out of whatever sort of core competency we have and become a holding company. Let's do everything. Uh, or do nothing. You know, let's outsource everything to uh, either, you know, people in other places or to a piece of technology. And and I guess because they realize that the closer you are to a bank, the more money you make. And the closer mm. you are to a human being creating value, the less money you make. You know, it's the old the old Jack Welch line about I, I figured out that I make less money uh, uh, investing in the manufacturing of a washing machine than I do lending money to someone yeah, to buy a washing machine. It, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but and I was arguing then that if we stay in that trajectory, we're going to be screwed. You know that that it, when push comes to shove, it's a very kind of Warren Buffett attitude. It's really good if your company has some core competence, some expertise. So I was making these really uh, using a lot of case studies of like Ritz Carlton and other companies that had t- sort of returned to competence. Like when uh, when Starbucks decided, you know, hey, we're we're not making good coffee anymore, and they brought back the original CEO, and he was like, mm. okay, here's how you make coffee. Um, mm-hmm. Let's do that really well. Um, that that companies are going to have to kind of go back to that and pick, you know, rather than weird values and top level this, what do we do? What do we know how Mm -hmm, to do? mm -hmm. I mean, start with that. You know, speaking of companies, I'm curious if you can connect the dots between what you were writing about in throwing rocks at the Google bus, which I feel like was really kind of originally targeting this extractive, you know, Mm. kind of capitalist manifesto with what's happening right now in the world around the pandemic and also around politics and the election. Like, I just feel like that was, that was when we were in peacetime and now we're in this really interesting crisis. And I'm just curious how you think it's going to accelerate or decelerate progress towards, you know, the next, the next way of working and being. I mean, I feel like when Donald Trump started to talk about the apparent trade-off between the Mm -hmm. economy Mm-hmm. and our health, um, that he exposed something. He exposed something really, really much deeper than I think he intended to, which is that most human beings now are serving the economy. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> when we with work- With life and limb. With life and limb. We're serving the economy, and we're not serving the real economy of, of goods and services that people actually need. You know, the, the, a lot of people now are, are realizing, look, I need food, I need shelter, you know, I, I need these basic things. We'd like education, we'd like some health care, but all these guys who put on suits and go on the train into the city, <laughs> what the f- 
what the heck are they doing? You can curse on this podcast. You can yeah, say oh, thank that. you. Yeah. But yeah, you know what I mean? It's like, what are they doing? How are they helping? What are they? What what what's going on? And we we're coming to understand that most of us are going to work not because we're providing an essential goods and good or service to someone, but we're trying to either market, in other words, convince people who don't need something that they do in order to grow a, a, a business, or somehow keep the economy growing, inflating, mm-hmm. and. That's to serve an operating system. And that's what I wrote about in Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, that beneath all of these tech companies, which may or may not be be creating interesting goods and services. I mean, a lot of tech companies are doing things that are cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're on a on an interface now that's letting us record. They're giving us something. But this growth mandate that every company has to hit a home run, to become a, a, a unicorn or a multi-billion dollar company, that's because of the underlying debt structure. Mm-hmm. That's because we live in an economy that since the 1200s has had a central currency that has to be paid back at interest. So companies have to grow to keep the economy going. And I think we're finally maybe either tired or creative enough to say, oh, <laughs> wait a minute. You mean we don't have to use this crazy exponential math equation <laughs> to direct every one of our businesses? No, you don't. <laughs> you know, you don't. You could just make money and reinvest it and 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 be just fine as long as you don't have um, uh, this this giant economy to support. It's really interesting, too, that you talked about, you know, who's really working for what. Because I, I just recently finished reading Bullshit, Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. Uh-huh. And it was just really eye-opening to think about the fact that not only do they exist because of bureaucracy and, and sort of, you know, corporate laziness, but they also literally exist as a sort of form of control and propping up and and kind of keeping the system the way it is, uh, which I hadn't really considered before. So it does feel like... Yeah, a lot. Some of the bullshit that's out there in terms of wasted effort and things that are too meta, um, it serves a purpose. It serves a very real purpose. It's just not the yeah. one that we think it does. Right. And and at the time, I mean, when a lot of this was 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 implemented, it it wasn't implemented nefariously. It mm-hmm. wasn't you know the Bilderberg Group thing. How are we going to control the masses? Mustache twirling. You know, it really wasn't. It was you know Franklin Delano Roosevelt looking at all these all these uh, uh, veterans who were going to come back. These traumatized World War II uh, soldiers are going to come back to America. How are we going to support them? And they came up with a smart idea, which is let's create this sort of this this infinitely expanding market. Stoke consumerism, which will create jobs for these guys to go into factories, give them mortgages so they don't go on strike, you know, and they came up with a system that really worked from, you know, the late 1940s right through really the Nixon era and and a bit beyond. But, Mm -hmm. you know, once you try to to you know, uh, uh, accelerate that that growth to kind of uh, uh, put it on digital steroids and have it grow to the point where you create these you know multi billion dollar empires, then it really stops. It stopped working. You know, it, it, you you can only be asymptotic. You know, for so long before things break down. It is just like a virus, actually, in that way. It is. I saw a post from Adrian Marie Brown this morning on Instagram that was a repost from something, but it was graffiti in some city that said, Corona is the virus, capitalism is the pandemic. Uh, which is that, you know, I thought that was artistic uh, <laughs> and also uh, tr- true. And so what I'm wondering about in this moment is if we can align on the idea that 
capitalism as we know it has outlived the purpose that you just described. What can we be doing right now to ensure that we don't just recreate and keep feeding that system when the virus has subsided? And can we be very precise about what kind of capitalism we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I mean, part of it is capitalism and capitalists are very sensitive to efforts to abolish them, mm-hmm. right? So we <laughs> sure. shouldn't, I don't think like we should talk about capitalism as the problem, but the, the sort of a capitalist monoculture yes. as the problem. So yes. it's great. Some companies will need to be capitalized. That's great. Uncle Vinny wants to start a pizzeria. He needs $20,000 for an oven. Let's invest. And mm-hmm. Vinny, you should, you know, either uh, uh, this is either a convertible debt structure or I, you know, I'll explain to him what or I have a share in your pizzeria and that's fine and I'm happy. Maybe I get a perpetual share for doing that or maybe not. Um, but but we'll, we'll organize that. That's real. But not the, the business sh- just because it borrowed money once or had investors once doesn't mean it's in hock to the mob forever. Mm. Right, which is the way we've set it up now. So you start a company, the minute you go public, now you've got shareholders who demand growth no matter what. Mm-hmm. Which is why, you know, and I got to, I went to a, a big Pepsi shareholder meeting, thanks to you, Aaron, actually, um, that's how they found me. Um, and and I saw the CEO or the, the head of something of the company was in front of all the vice presidents at this big meeting in Barcelona, and they were shouting, 4.3, 4.3, which was the percent growth target they had for the year and i got up to do my talk and i was like dude if you're one of the 50 biggest companies in the world if you need to grow by 4.3 percent in order for everything to be okay then we are really fucked right uh, this is not working so it's it's balancing that then and saying well is this a business that needs to grow forever or is there any right size for this business? Is there a place that we can get to? And then if we are going to be a right size business, is there a way for us to be okay with the amount of income we're getting? Mm-hmm. And and how do you structure a business to do that? You know, And that's what I think people are going to be looking at, partly because they're tired. They want to spend time with their kids. Can I just make $10 million? Is that enough? 30 million, 50 million, what's enough, you know? And what's enough for the company? If we make $30 million profit a year, do we need to increase that? Or can we just innovate from within to sustain our, our size and profit level? So interesting. That's, it's the fight I get in most often on Twitter is the fight with folks that are like, if you, you know, eliminate the billionaire class, why would anyone start a company? And I'm just like, I don't that's know how much money. You, it is insane. It is how much money insane. does a person need? Yeah, that's the point, right? And it's sort of like, well, they did this amazing thing. They should reap the spoils of that of that amazing thing. And I, what I just, are the spoils? But what are the spoils? It's like they should reap the spoils. They should have a hundred nineteen-year-old <laughs> women in a harem, <laughs> right? That's the spoils. That's what do you mean? Why would I start a company if I don't get 119 year old girls in a, in a harem? What's That's the unbelievable. point? That's what the billion dollars is, though. It's just perverse. It's just right. it's just money that could be doing something. And the smart ones realized way too late. Oh, my gosh, I have 99 percent too much money. Now I'm going to figure away. out a way to try to shove it back in the economy where I they think get it's to look, do the best. They get to look like a god twice in that scenario. Right. Once for building the big thing and getting so 
rich and then once for realizing that they need to be benevolent. My favorite quote is from Ricardo Semler, who says, if you have enough to give money at the end, then you took too much. Right. Right. And that, and I, I really think that's interesting, which makes me always question, you know, how much is enough. But I am curious, can you talk a little bit about, you talked about the money could be doing something. Can you talk about trapped money and parked money for a second and the role that plays? Well, I mean, the, the, the way I look at money is trapped in share price. You know, that, that partly because of our tax structure, that capital gains are taxed low and income is taxed high, um, there's, a, there's an incentive um, for the wealthy to have their share price increase. And share price money is, as far as I'm concerned, is money that's trapped. So when I look at digital companies or most new companies, I look at them as kind of software that's developed to suck money out of the real economy and trap it in share price. So like that's what Uber is. You know, more than it's connecting drivers with with riders, it's taking money out of the economy and shoving it into um, into share price. And that's a uh, it's, a, it's sort of it's a non-circulatory way um, uh, to look at money, and I understand it's it's the way businesses look at money is how do I earn ten dollars once rather than how do I earn one dollar ten times. The one if you earn one dollar ten times, it's because that money is circulated through the economy again and again and again and again, and that's that's the kind of ten dollars that you that you want. You know, it's it's. I mean, the thing I always tell uh, uh, companies is, you know, make everyone rich. And that's the part they don't quite understand because they're still in the in the sort of balance sheet of Renaissance Europe mentality of credit and debit. <laughs> you know, what you want is your customers to be rich. Why? So they can spend more money with you. You want your suppliers to be rich. So you don't look at them like Walmart does. How much can we squeeze them, you know, in, in this sort of vampiric way that ultimately pushes them out of business. Rather, how could we give them deals so that they come back and love working with us? You know, and and once you start looking at it, it's not spiritual. It's just it's actual math. Right, right. You know, right. the more money there is in your marketplace, the more money there is for you. Mm-hmm. And and when you think about this sort of growth at any cost extractive way of being, what do you think that does to innovation? Um, well, it does a bunch of things. I mean, it makes, it actually, it, it puts companies in kind of the rearview mirror as far as mm. innovation. It makes them depend more on data and past results, um, less willing to take risks, and more secretive mm. is the real thing. So just like they're storing their money and locking it up in a vault, they're taking their innovations and putting them in black boxes and preventing anyone from seeing them because they become afraid that their best innovations are in the past, yeah. you know, and that's really sad. You yeah. know, what I tell companies to do, and, and, and even companies like Procter & Gamble do this, is like open source every friggin' technology thing that you came up with. And what does that communicate to the world? It communicates that we are so good. We are so confident in our abilities. We're going to share everything we're doing at the moment we've done it because we're so much better than you. Mm-hmm. That, that that we're going to come up with the next thing and we know how to use this better than you do. So here, here's everything we did. Yeah. Anything that you can do to contribute to that knowledge base is only going to serve us because we're the think, smartest ones. I actually think that insecurity is at the root of a lot of this because 
it does boil down to the idea that like, yeah, if you if you want to have money flow and you want to have ideas flow, then you need to believe that you're still going to be in business in two years or 10 years and that you're still mm-hmm. going to be producing your best work. And and what I find is that instead, the underlying ethos is let's get out of this thing. Let's sell. Let's go public. Let's cash right. out. Let's mm-hmm. like everybody kind of want is looking for like the big windfall. And that they literally, can then trap. it's the exit. Yeah, literally, right. it's like literally, where's it's our exit? exit? Yeah, how do <laughs> right. we get like, out of this economy? That's part with of our what, trappings. Right, that's part of what digital did, though. You know, digital. The, 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 this is some of the stuff I was writing about way early on, and like media virus and all, is that digital tends to make us go meta on things. Mm-hmm. You know that the sort of postmodern sort of when you go meta means like you kind of pull out and and you no longer look at the business, but you kind of are thinking about the business of the business. Or you don't buy shares, you buy derivatives or derivatives of derivatives. You know, you keep mm-hmm. going meta. You keep going to the next abstract level. So it's really hard when you're in that kind of society, in that kind of framework, it's hard to think about the actual business you're in as mm-hmm. the business you're in. Mm. You tend to think of the business you're in as the thing that you're going to sell. And then once you sell enough businesses, then you go, now I'm going to sell a business that buys and sells businesses. Right, right, right. right. I'm going to be so an investor. On and so on. Yeah. Right. I love that because I think in, in the work that we do, which you're really familiar with, is uh, we often are trying to get our clients who are very, very large clients to at a minimum acknowledge who the customer is and how they're delivering value to the customer. But I think another way of saying that is to be able to ground in the idea of like, what do you actually make? Mm-hmm. Like, what is your what is your business of the business? I love that question. I think it's really um, valuable because the conversation does get extrapolated a lot of layers away from that. Oh yeah, I mean, I once I, I got this call. It was what motivated that first book. Um, um, uh, uh, get back in the box. I got this call from a guy who said he was a CEO of an American television manufacturer, and wanted advice on getting out of the box with their communication strategy. <laughs> And I knew at the time there are no American television manufacturers. So I was like, really? You make televisions? Mm. He's like, well, we don't actually make the televisions. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, so you design the televisions? No, well, we don't really do that. So you, you know, you market them? Well, we have an Omnicom company. Well, you do logistics? Well, UPS is actually. So what do you do? <laughs> right. What do you do? You know, and I end up meeting with this guy and he cries. He cries in his office. He's like, we don't actually do anything. You know, and, and I don't mean to tease him, but he was weeping. And I was like, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Yeah, so yeah. it's a TV. Is there, do you know anybody? Is there anybody here who knows about TVs? It's like, it's, I think Morris. I think Morris over in, in, in you know, whatever, uh, the, the marketing logistics or whatever. I yeah. think he, call bring in Morris. So Morris comes in. It's like, yeah, I used to work at Zenith. We had real TVs. How do they work? You know, so just to start, find, find one person in your company who knows something about what your company supposedly does and and start from there but it changes the priorities you know and i think we're going to see that now as as you know people from my daughter on up are realizing that knowing how to do something might be cool um you if we start with that you know then you we think of the the org chart of the mm-hmm. company as much more of a mandala with the mm-hmm. super competent people at the middle mm-hmm. and then everybody is serving those little geniuses those little skunk <laughs> works 
people, the true geeks and nerds of what you do, whether you're making cement or making transistor radios. I guess no one does that anymore. But whatever you're doing, those are the stars. Those, those, that's the social and, 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 uh, and business and competence uh, uh, center, heart of what you're doing. And it becomes the culture of, of your company. And, and some have done that. I mean, Apple had that for a while when, you know, the cult of Steve was making Macs in that separate building. You know, I mean, it was a little crazy, but at least it had that, you know, the, it, it seemed to value the maker rather than just the, uh, uh, the, the marketer or the spreadsheet. I think it's become the culture of the culture, too, because if you look around, the sort of death of expertise and the death of science has been a death of, of not really, you know, knowing how things work and how things mm -hmm. get made and how things actually get done. And you see people, you know, questioning epidemiologists on social media and then turning around and watching Netflix. And right. it's like, uh, you know what makes that work, right? A whole bunch of science. Yeah, um, but... But we have a you know we have a president who was raised in the church of Norman Vincent Peale literally <laughs> from the time he was six years old he was listening to Norman Vincent Peale he's the guy who wrote um, um, the power of positive thinking mm -hmm. and it's a very American idea that just you know think and grow rich it's what's behind the secret this is it you just you know you, you just gotta you, believe you, you just gotta believe and believing is part of it. But you kind of also need some bricks between that mortar of belief. You know, the belief is your value system that can help guide, you know, what you learn to do. But you still, uh, it, it should be used to energize actual functioning rather than just you using it as an excuse to, to ignore um, people who actually know something. Of so course, I'm I mean, intuition should not be the enemy of data. <laughs> It shouldn't. So it really shouldn't. You know, but without any data, it's hard to intuit much. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm curious, you know, speaking of the power of positive thinking, coming out of the pandemic that we're in right now. We're coming out of it? I'm, I'm saying let's pass ahead. Let's <laughs> someday. Pass ahead. Let's someday. Imagine, right, we're gonna. Let's imagine that someday we get our shit together. Um, who Who is likely to succeed do you think do you think the winners and losers are going to fall across lines that you're comfortable with or do you think it's going to get better worse i'm just curious who you think is going to kind of uh you know come on the other side of this in a, in a beneficial position and whether that tells a story that we like or don't like uh um well the loser losers are going to be the people who've been losing all along Mm -hmm. I mean, our society was built. So you see it like people in jail are the worst. Immigrants are the second worst. Um, uh, uh, people south of the equator are going to be bad. And then everywhere else, it'll be brown people, you know, <laughs> and women. You know, it's sort of, it's the same order of things will uh, dictate where we fall on the spectrum of, of winning and losing. Um, on the more positive side, I feel like we will have winners in uh, some of the more distributed mm. businesses. Um, I feel like, um, and maybe this is, I don't know if this is insane, but <laughs> um, uh, small farmers, um, uh, indigenous people who still have some connection to their own land, mm -hmm. um, uh, wise people who can help uh, uh, help people make. I think sense makers 
are mm-hmm. going to are going to be valuable because it's a real discontinuity. This is like another Kennedy assassination or or 9/11. So people who can make sense um but but you know so so like the elders uh elders who are still articulate about about sense making and farmers um educators I mean some of the people that we would want to see um uh come through. I mean, just as the firefighters came through 9-11 as heroes, I think healthcare workers are going to come through this as heroes. And maybe the healthcare workers will have some strong suggestions mm-hmm. on the future of healthcare policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think that we will, we will necessarily uh, see some of the value in more distributed solutions and the, the vulnerability that these very brittle centralized solutions have, have conferred on us. So the the winners, I hope, um, will be people uh, in in uh, small to medium sized businesses, if that's still a term that's used, right. SMEs or whatever those are, <laughs> um, who are actually making things in real places. You know, mm-hmm. the, the the we make windows, we make carburetors. Do cars have carburetors? Probably not. Um, I don't know what they use, but people who are you know places where are making things mm-hmm. um, and in. Slightly less, you know, uh, global disconnected ways. That's awesome. I hope so too. And uh, if everyone buys a gift card from your local restaurant, we might have some of those too. Still, there left. you go. Exactly. So, uh, Douglas, final question, um, and this one I, I, is a, a selfish question, actually, at least selfish in service of our purpose. I'm curious. You know the ready. You know what we do. Is there anything you think we should be doing differently or focusing on or thinking about going into the next, you know, six months to a year? If you were to sort of sit down with us and, and redirect us a little bit, do we just keep doing what we've been doing or do we lean into, you know, some particular direction here? I'm afraid of leaning in because the woman is really bad who said that. <laughs> um, I think she corrupted poor little Mark Zuckerberg who would have been good otherwise. Mm, interesting. Maybe. Although the other guy, um, what was his name? The Napster guy? Yeah, Sean. Oh, Sean. Sean wasn't good, and Peter Thiel probably wasn't a good influence maybe either. Just not, maybe the cast of characters. You know, <laughs> he really picked it. the wrong people. If he had picked, like, me and you <laughs> and, and you know, even Evan Williams or something, it really would be different. You know, can he'd still have, he'd only have 100 million or something. Poor thing. <laughs> But the world would be so much better. Um, no, what I would, I think that the next opportunity, and I don't know how you do this, um, is much smaller businesses needing your help. Mm. If there's a way to create a product like, you know how Seth Godin does this like alternate MBA, yeah, yeah. you know, and hundreds of people take this thing and they spend maybe a thousand bucks a piece. He still makes a hundred thousand bucks for a month of work. Um, but it's 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 directed at these at these tiny business so i think the emails i'm getting and it's 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 not serviceable are from you know i have a music store i have a pizzeria i'm baking bread i'm you yeah. know and all those people really need uh some help 
in how to steer, how to navigate a successful course, you know, through these these choppy waters. And if the ready could help apply these things, I know you wrote the book, you know, and that should be of help. But even the scale of the examples in the book are still too big. It's big. Yeah, they're not readily. I mean, I can translate them, but I, I think it's you know that's because I think in this space all the time. But I think it's mm-hmm. hard for people who are just you know I'm fixing vacuum cleaners. It's hard for them to quite understand. And those are the people we need to help. Those are the businesses that are going to increase the resilience that we need. So if there's a way to help them become as ready as we want to make GE, um, you know that would be that would be a great service and, and potentially profitable. Well, it's very exciting to hear you say that because there's there's good news in the works over at the Ready. So we'll uh, more on cool. that more on that in future in a future announcement. Well, I hope you invite me to play too. I still have access to part of your Slack. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll run some things by you. As yeah. uh, as they mature, if, if that okay. offer stands. All right, great. No, because that way you you can use this podcast to say, oh, you know, if you come to the ready, you get access to people like like Rushkoff. That's true. There that's you go. True. Get a little Rushkoff in your life. Yeah. Uh, that seems like a pretty good place to dial things back and and shut it down. So uh, Douglas, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for being on the right side of the ethical law. And hey, everyone, uh, if you could do us a solid like Natalie did and write us a review, which she also sent to me, which I continue to love <laughs> reading, uh, that would be amazing. We appreciate it. Y'all are helping us reach uh, larger and larger audiences every week, which is so, so, so great. So thank you. And as always, a quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.